Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now, the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the leaders. These are the le- sorry. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now, some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, Athiah, son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Jephetiah, the son of Mahalalel, a descendant of Perez, and Messiah, son of Baruch, the son of Kohose, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Joyarib, the son of Zechariah, a descendant of Shelah. The descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 men of standing. From the descendants of Benjamin, Salu, son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Bediah, the son of Koliah, the son of Maseiah, the son of Ethiel, the son of Jeshiah, and his followers, Gabai and Salai, 928 men. Joel, son of Zikri, was their chief officer, and Judah, son of Hasanuyah, was over the new quarter of the city. From the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Merioth, the son of Ahitub, the official in charge of the house of God, and uh, associates who carried on work for the temple. Eighty, sorry, 822 men. Adiah, son of Jeroham, the son of Pelaliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malkijah, and his associates, who were heads of families, 242 men. Amashsai, son of Azarel, the son of Azai, the son of Meshelamoth, the son of Immer, and his associates, who were men of standing, 128. The chief officer was Zabediel and Hagedolim. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You have those mornings, don't you? (laughs) Now, if you look at uh, chapter 10 and so chapter 11, chapter 12, you see there's a lot of names there. And that would have been one very long and very hard reading. So rumor is already circulating that Rafa hijacked the sound system this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Would you join me in a short prayer? Father, we give you thanks for your word, and Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to listen, that you would speak to us in your name. Amen. 
Now, one of my uh, lasting memories of lockdown was cycling through the empty streets of London. And you may have seen at the time some of that shocking footage, lines of shops on Oxford Street that were boarded up. Streets around some of London's most popular landmarks, such as the London Eye, Westminster Bridge, Parliament Square, Trafalgar Square, St. Paul's Cathedral, were completely empty. Honestly, I'd, I'd cycle for miles and not see a soul. Closed shops and quiet streets had turned London into a ghost town. Now, in a Wild West variation on the theme, I remember reading an article that said, you can practically see the tumbleweeds. And in our story of Nehemiah, the city walls, they have been rebuilt. Jerusalem has been put back together to some extent, but it's still a ghost town in many ways. And these last few chapters that we've been looking at uh, together, they have been all about the people gathering together in Jerusalem. They have assembled together there for worship, for rejoicing, for repentance, and for making promises. But for the most part, the people still lived actually in the towns and the villages surrounding Jerusalem. And Jerusalem itself remained quiet and relatively unpopulated. And that was not right. And so what we have in this passage is a list of the people who take up residence in Jerusalem, who take up residence in the city of God. Verse 2 of chapter 11 says, The people commended or blessed all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So what we've got here is this chapter, it's a, it's a memorial. It's a list of names. It's a memorial of all those who committed to live in Jerusalem after the days of exile and devastation. Now, it doesn't seem like much. Absolutely honest with one another. It's the sort of passage that we just skip over in our devotions. But there is something remarkable here. It's a passage, you see, about the goodness of God about the faithfulness of God. It's a tough passage to read, as we've seen, but it's also a tough passage to figure out what to make of it. But if you take away the names, and the names are important, but if you take away the names for a moment, there is actually a basic structure that emerges. Uh, There's something like the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. So let me try and help us understand it a little bit, at least understand the structure. Effectively, it's about Jerusalem and the villages, and it's about the people of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers. And it's just worth remembering that, of course, there were originally 12 tribes of Israel. They were divided into the two kingdoms, and this is the the remnant, if you like, of the southern kingdom, that the northern kingdom tribe is is long gone. And the first 24 verses of chapter 11 are all about Jerusalem. So, for example, if you look back at verse 4 of chapter 11, it says, In Jerusalem lived other people from both Judah and Benjamin. And then there's listed in verse 4 the descendants of Judah, and in verse 7 the descendants of Benjamin. And then included in Jerusalem, that the city of Jerusalem, were these other groups, the priests, verse 10, the Levites, verse 15, and then verse 19, the gatekeepers. So you have this pattern. Can you see that? Judah, Benjamin, Levites, 
and gatekeepers. Sorry, priests, Levites, and gatekeepers. And that's basically a, the pattern that's repeated throughout the passage. So when you get to verse 25, the focus shifts then from Jerusalem to the villages. But again, you'll notice that pattern. It's first Judah, verse 25. Then Benjamin, verse 31. The priests, chapter 12, verse 1. The Levites, chapter 12, verse 8. And then finally, the gatekeepers, chapter 12, verse 25. So that's that pattern again. Judah, Benjamin, priests, Levites, and great keepers. Okay. So what we've got here, essentially, is a lot of names. But overall, it's not that complicated. There's actually something in this passage that is very ordinary and very plain. And I think... That is exactly what makes it so helpful because it makes us take a closer look to look again at some things that we may take for granted or tend to overlook as we read Scripture, but also as we tend to think about our own lives and what God is doing in our lives today. And one of the things that I think we see here in this text is the importance of, first, commitment to the work of God. And one thing we have to notice about chapter 11 is its association and the way that it ties into what we read last week. Now, you'll remember that chapter 9 and chapter 10 is a, is a covenant. It's a, an, an agreement that the people make to love and to serve the Lord their God. They've, they've reflected on the way, you remember how the Lord has been good to them, particularly in that prayer of, of, of confession. And then at the end of that prayer, chapter 9, verse 38, we read, in view of all this, in view of God's faithfulness over the many, many years, despite the fact that we were sinful and we turned our backs on him, he relentlessly came back to us and he turned up again and again. In the light of all of that, all of the good things that God has done for us, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. And then remember in chapter 10, we have the signatories of that agreement. And if you look right at the very end of chapter 10, the very last sentence, essentially you've got a list of commitments, but the very last one in chapter 10 verse 9 is this one. We will not neglect the house of our God. In other words, in the light of God's goodness to them and to the generations, in their lives and past lives, we will love and care for the house of God and we will love and care for God's people. That's their commitment. In the light of God's goodness to them, that's how they're going to respond. Very straightforward. And so what we have there here in this chapter before us this morning, in these chapters before us this morning, is the people fulfilling their commitment that they've made in chapter 10. And they're doing what they said they would do. They're looking after the house of God. So I hope broadly that's the picture, that's what we're dealing with this morning, that's the, the context. So Nehemiah, naturally, what does he want to do? He's a governor, he wants to move people into the city, doesn't he? Right into Jerusalem, which is the center of the nation. And as the governor, he issues an edict, one out of every ten people living in the suburbs must move to Jerusalem. The people we see there, they then cast lots, and whoever got the short straw, that individual, or couple, or family was expected to move their home and possessions into Jerusalem. You know, there's something very interesting here. If you read this carefully, it is apparent that when any of the people were chosen to move into Jerusalem, 
they were permitted to decline if they wanted to. This is because God wanted volunteers to do this. So you can very easily imagine someone could be chosen but could decide against moving. Now, this might not be the right time for them or their families, for them as individuals. You know, it's not that they don't have a heart to serve here, but it's just not the right time. And if that was the case, then the lot would be cast again. And, and sooner or later, someone would be found who consented freely to go to serve. And according to the count, understandably, those who chose to go were commended by the people. They were honored by God. They, they'd stepped up. And God blessed them. But I want you to see here that there is no suggestion that there are two tiers of people. Those who volunteered to do so and those who didn't. There's, no, there's not two lists. Now the application for us, I would suggest, is rather obvious. See, the same principle applies in the church today. According to the New Testament, we are called into ministry, every single one of us. It's the priesthood of all believers. We are all priests before God. The ministry belongs to the saints. And the minute that you become a Christian, you are moved into God's new Jerusalem. And when you step into that space, you are asked by the Lord to take up and serve, to do work according to the spiritual gift that he has given you. But you must also volunteer to do so. God does not force his people to do what they are asked to do. Yes, we all have spiritual gifts, different ways in which we can contribute. He gave us all spiritual gifts, but he does not force us to use them. You see, the Lord's motivation to serve him is not in accordance with strict rules. Whatever you've been told over the years, in different church contexts and backgrounds, we are not under law. We are under grace, and that is a far more compelling motivation. You see, he longs for a cheerful heart and a joyful giver of someone's time and energy. He wants us to serve the Lord and one another out of love and care for the house of God, for the people of God. And of course, with that, for those of us who do step up, there comes a deep appreciation from the rest of us. Thank you. But let me stress this morning that God is not heavy-handed. Here's a need. And, I, and he says to us, I know someone here will take it up. So let's have a look briefly at what, uh, what the people of God volunteered to do. And we'll see, first of all, verse 4 to 9, we see there, men from Judah and Benjamin, uh, they, they uprooted their lives and they went into Jerusalem and they went to live to protect the city. And, and we see those men, verse 6, interest, interestingly, are called men of standing. Or as the ESV puts it, valiant men or, or men of valor. And these men, and certainly with, with their wives and their children, if they, if they had them, these men, they, they move into the heart of Jerusalem to live there. Because you see, if the city is not thriving and if the city is not protected, then the house of God will be neglected. Now I have to say to you, I, I'm slightly sad that we, we, we don't have the more time this morning because there's actually lots and lots of really interesting details in this, in this list of names. But I want to just pick out one immediately that caught my attention. Now, you notice there in, in the list of the descendants of Judah that they focus on one name whose name is, is Perez. And there's lots that can be said about Perez. 
But it concludes with a statement, verse 6, the descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 men of valor. Now you might ask, why Perez? Well, it just happens to be through the line of Perez that Jesus is born. The true man of valor. The true man of standing. Now, there is a lot going on in these verses. Let me just pick up a couple of other things. So verses 10 to 24, what we've got there essentially is a picture of God's provision for ministry within the city of Jerusalem. You know, if you've got a capital city filled with people, then you need a ministry within it, don't you, to maintain the spiritual lives and well-being and strength of these people. So first, you'll notice there's a company of priests selected. That's a total of 1,192 of them. That's a lot. And they fall into three groups. They're told that 822 of them, verse 12, carried on work for the temple. Okay? They were working specifically, work for the temple. Now, they would have been normally the sort of officiating priests. They offered sacrifices. They were the one who sort of presented the offerings and performed the, the ritual that Moses had prescribed. You know, they were the ones, I suppose, who ministered to the spiritual life of the people. Then there was another group, 242, who were set aside, as verse 13, we see there, as heads of families. And this means, essentially, that they had a, a ministry of counseling families, of loving and caring for the well-being of the people in their community. And then we have a listed, a third group of 128 men who are called, surprisingly, men of standing. These are priests, actually. Notice that these are the men of valor, verse 14, they're priests, but they're also warriors. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, they fought in the battles that Israel engaged in from time to time. They, they, they were soldiers. Now, when we carry this over to the parallel, if you like, of, of the church today, we find that God has actually provided, even within our own church family, ministry within ministry. So there's a, a group of men and, and women who are, who are here sitting this morning who are helping us to understand the meaning of, of the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They teach the doctrines of redemption and forgiveness of sin and help people to understand how to, be, to become and, and what it is to be a, a new creature, a creature in Christ. See, many of us, aren't we, were involved in teaching the Bible, even in our small groups in different contexts. And then there are others amongst us who are specially gifted in serving and loving our community. Working in our pastoral teams. Helping with the community group. And finally, there are some who are especially served, I want to suggest to you, as warriors in this spiritual battle that we're in. Prayer warriors. And also there are those amongst us who are involved in guarding the flock from the invasion of wrong doctrines or wrong practices that infiltrate the church from outside. So there's, there's, a, there's a commitment to, to the work of God here. But what we have, I want to suggest to you this morning, is what we have here is a picture of a thriving church. And it's a church that has three things. It's a church that's teaching the word of God. It's a church that's building itself up in community. And it's a church that's praying in dependence on God. But above all, it is a church of willing volunteers, moved and motivated to serve God's people by His goodness and His grace. And so it's a happy people. So there's a commitment to the work of God here. There's also contentment to the call of God. Now, we talked last week about the importance of counting our many 
blessings, of, of recognizing the goodness of God in our lives. Now, I don't know whether or not you did that exercise. I suggest, and it's not appropriate for me, I'm not your teacher, but well, I suppose I'm in one sense, but I'm never going to labor these points. But I did. I thought, I've got to put into practice what I recommend. And so I took time this week. I only, I only actually had 40 minutes. But in 40 minutes, I was pleasantly surprised. So I, said, I think I said two or three hours last week. You only need half an hour. It's bank holiday Monday tomorrow. Half an hour, I went back on my life, went back to my parents, and I looked and saw and asked myself the question, how is God being good to me in my life? It was astonishing. And uh, it was deeply moving to see God's goodness in my life and how much he's been good to me. You know, it's no small thing to notice and to recognize what the Lord has done for the people here that are found listed in these chapters. In this part of Nehemiah, in this part of the history, and there is something in this passage that can point us not just to commitment, but also to contentment as well. You see, there's no reason that any of this that's found in these chapters should be here. See, the fact that it is recorded here is simply down to the mercy and the grace and the generosity of God. Just take an inventory with, you, with me, would you? Just for a few moments as we look at this passage. What are some of the things that we see here? Well, first of all, we see there are people. Now, I guess you want to say to me, well, that's just obvious, isn't it, Johnny? Of course there's people. There are people here, but more specifically, they are people of God. These people, they have names and they have a family history. And many will have children and they have a future. And they all together make up a community. They are a community of faith. They're a community that has been formed and shaped and maintained by God's grace and according to the promises that God has made to them. Now, we've already noted, haven't we, week in, week out, really, that as we've looked through this book, the importance really is about the people. You know, what's the good of having a city? What's the, the good of sort of rebuilding uh, the city walls and the temple without the people that are there to enjoy the things for which they were created? Ultimately, a relationship with God and a relationship with one another. You see, there is... No greater blessing, there is no higher esteem than to, than to be counted among the number of God's people. And that's what we find here. We, we have the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin, the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers, and they're all part of the people, the people of God. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, we also see worship. Now, there are a number of places in this chapter, in chapter 12, that talks about the leaders of worship, those who led the people in giving, thanksgiving to God. Chapter 12, verse 8, for example, talks about those who were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And when we read here about the priests and, and the Levites and the gatekeepers, we are to equate them, these, these people and their roles, with worship, with praise, and with thanksgiving to God. In fact, actually, the context here is, is that these verses are preparing for the very dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So if you look at chapter 12, verse 27, we read there, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully. The dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So you see what's, what's happening here? This wasn't just a matter of sort of repopulating the city. No, this is a city that God has set to praise and worship. It's a people who are taken up with the wonder and the glory and the goodness of God and a longing to live for Him in every part of their lives. And sung worship is the mouthpiece of their praise. 
Here we have the, the great ministry of music. And we know music's, you know, in church is not entertainment. It is the means by which we are strengthened when we sing together. The way the, the Lord, through His Spirit, feeds us, restores us, and heals us from our brokenness. There's something in the power of worship. And the other thing we see, thirdly, in this passage is provision. There's provision here for, for the people's needs, the provision from God's hand. There was, there was food on the table, there were crops in the barns, there was livestock in the field. How do we know that? How do we see that from this passage? Well, because there were gatekeepers. The gatekeepers are listed there as 172 in chapter 11, verse 19. But if you look down at chapter 12, verse 25, it says this. That Mataniah and the others with him were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. They were standing guard at the storehouses. See, God had provided for his people in such an abundant and generous way that they were able to bring their gifts and their sacrifices, their first fruits, their tithes, their grain offerings to the temple to offer up as a gift of thanksgiving to God. And the gatekeepers stand guard. Now I'm going to visit my dad. As long as the service doesn't run too late. But I'm going to go and see my dad this afternoon. And sadly, he's, uh, he's been taken into hospital. And uh, he's 83. And in, in the last three years, uh, I have to say to you, there's been a, a significant decline in health, which has been very painful for him. He was a very fit man, really, up until he was... 80, we would go for a walk up a hill, and he'd almost certainly beat me to the top. He's a former farmer, and uh, he loves the outdoors. There's no greater joy that, it, that he would get than, than going for a walk. And let me say to you, he would have loved to explore the Peak District with me, and me with him. You know, it's when we lose something that we appreciate what we once had, don't we? You know, none of the good things that the Lord has given the Israelites was guaranteed. There didn't have to be people in worship. There didn't have to be provision in Jerusalem. In fact, basically, all of that had gone away less than 150 years before. You know, before the events of this chapter, the people, remember, had been defeated and they'd been taken away into exile. The city and the temple had been destroyed. There was no worship or praise or thanksgiving in Jerusalem. And the crops were left to rot in the field and the people starved. It was devastating. I mean, there'll be those of us here who have home churches that are now no longer places of worship. We know that. It's devastating. Now, in the case of the Israelites, we know what the cause of that was. It was their sinfulness. Faced with God's faithfulness and love, they turned to idols. Their own sin had brought judgment upon them. They didn't deserve God's blessing. They didn't deserve the blessings that we find in this chapter. But as we reminded ourselves last week, our God is good. 
His love is steadfast and sure and will endure forever. He always comes back looking for us. Now I wonder, as we read this passage, have we sometimes overlooked or taken for granted some of God's, what we might call his unpretentious blessings? Blessings like this. One writer says this. He says, these things, the people and the worship and daily bread, they are the essence of everything that people should have longed for. Everything that had been withheld from them in judgment. See, these understated blessings, they force us to ask ourselves the question of what counts as true blessing to us. You know, this passage preaches to me. Because let's face it, one thing, one of the things about midlife being middle-aged, and I'm having to come to terms with the fact that that's where I sit now. Uh, my kids constantly remind me that I'm, well, they say I'm old, to be honest with you, but I think I'm middle-aged. <laughs> but what that gives us, doesn't it? It gives us that little bit of distance to look back you know, and maybe notice some unmet expectations or even simply ask the question, is this it? And that's why people talk, isn't it, about the dissatisfaction with middle age and midlife crisis that comes with that. And I want to suggest to us this morning, to myself, that this is a helpful corrective to those sorts of thinkings. And this passage maybe has something to say for those of us here who are going through a time of suffering. Maybe we're struggling. Maybe we feel that we're in a a time of trial and pain and and sickness and loss. You know, this passage is something to say to us in this room. If we feel that we have an uncertain future, we can't quite see what next for us when we graduate from university. We do not know what tomorrow brings. Or maybe there are those here who are simply, you know, just struggling with that anxiety, with fear about our current situation, or indeed the culture that we live in, or even the state of the Church of England. Well, let me invite each one of us this morning to just briefly take an inventory of our lives. Now, can you... Look, can I ask you this question? Can you identify these three things in your lives? The people of God. The worship of God. And the provision from His hands. Do we deserve those things? Are they guaranteed? Can we take any credit for them? No, they are the gift of God's hands, of his abundant mercy and grace and kindness to us because, praise his heavenly name, he loves you and he knows you by name and he's got you and he's got your situation, however difficult and however hard. And yet, I would suggest to you that he's provided those three things, the very basics and foundation of our needs. And that comes from a heart that overflows with contentment and gratitude. And that is our calling, is how we should respond to him accordingly. So we have then commitment to the work of God, contentment in the call of God. And let's notice finally and briefly, confidence in the promises of God. Now I said to you that when you come to a passage like this, actually, it's quite daunting initially. But when you start to look at it, always, I promise you, there are always pleasant surprises. And there's something in here 
that tells us that not only that the Lord has great things for us, that the Lord has done great things for us, but there's something in here that tells us that the Lord has even greater things ahead for us. And he's going to do greater things for the people of God. Now, it is true, I think, to suggest here that, that on the whole, the people of God at this moment, things are going to get messy in, in coming chapters, but at this moment, the people of God are happy. It's a good time. It's a good space. But something is missing here. There's something missing in this passage. Something missing in what is recorded here. I don't know if you spotted it. One theologian has said that you can define or describe God's kingdom in in the Bible as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. He says that the basic idea is woven throughout Scripture. And in this passage, what do we have? Well, we have God's people, the Old Testament people of God in Judah and Benjamin and Levi. We also have God's place, the place in the Old Testament where God has made his name to dwell in Jerusalem. And yes, we could say, couldn't we, that obviously they are under God's rule. But in another sense, they're not, are they? You notice that the king that is mentioned in this passage is Darius, the king of Persia. They're still under Persian rule. They're still under the reign of the Persian king. In fact, we read back in chapter 9, verse 36, that all the people said, we are slaves today. They consider themselves to be slaves to the Persian empire, to the Persian king. And for all the leadership that we have in in, in the book of Nehemiah and, and the book of Ezra, And the overseers that we find in this passage, everything that we see about Zerubbabel in in, in Ezra and and Nehemiah here, effectively, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all they are really is governors, isn't it? But the people do not have a king. There's no king of Israel on the throne in Jerusalem. There's no son of David sitting on the throne according to the promises of God. In fact, to be honest with you, there's a lot missing from this passage that doesn't match up or meet the expectations that God's word has promised through the prophets in the Old Testament. There's no mention of what Isaiah and Malachi and Zechariah said would happen. They said, didn't they, that all nations would flow to Jerusalem and many peoples would come and say, let's go up to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We, We don't see here any of that. And also, we don't see that the promise that's made in Joel, that God would, would, would pour out his spirit in those days, in the last days. We don't have any of those things happening in this passage. But what we do have, and don't miss this, what we do have is God's, God preserving his people, and he's preserving the place to make way for the coming of the promised king. And we know, don't we, that it came to pass. 400 years later, Jesus will be born. And we are told in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is the offspring of Zerubbabel, the predecessor to Nehemiah. And he's from the family of King David. He's he's of the tribe of Judah. He is the Christ He is the expected Messiah. He is the promised King of Israel. 
who suffered and died and was raised to bring about all the fulfillments of the promises of God that he had promised to the people beginning back there in the book of Genesis to this point and beyond. See, Jesus is the one who gathers people from all the nations to enjoy the blessings of God. People represented even in this room this morning. He is the one who pours out his spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who leads and guides us through the life's trials and tribulations. He blesses us in ways that we can hardly imagine. It's beyond our expectations, beyond our imaginations, what Jesus will do for us and what he has already, already done for us. Because it points us to the ultimate glory, to eternity itself. And all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament and all of this was accomplished at the cross and through his resurrection. And so, this passage this passage that you normally just skip over in our devotions, this passage of unpronounceable names, they cast our sight into the future. From this point, and they remind us of what has happened in Jesus Christ as we look back, in God's faithfulness to his promises to fulfill them all in the Lord Jesus you see, this passage this morning gives you and me hope. It gives us hope because we see, because where we see no king here, we now know that the king, Jesus, the king, Jesus, is on the throne. He sits on that throne. And we, we are his people, praise his name. We're not struggling along on our own, but the king on the throne has got us, he's holding us. He calls us to be people of kindness and generosity, people who love and serve him, people of community, people of generosity. But above all, people who are faithful to the calling that God has laid on our lives. We've been gathered together to contribute in different ways. Let the Lord bless you. Let the Lord bless us. It's been a funny old morning. I don't know what he's saying to us. But hear one thing particularly, if you would. Our God is good. Take that away. He is faithful and true. He's good and he's got your situation. He's got my situation, and he's got our situation as a church, and he wants us to flourish, and he wants us to thrive, because he is the king. Amen.